Thank you for listening to NSL Double Talk. Never stop learning. At Never Stop Learning, we connect you with engaging experts who join you and your friends or colleagues in conversation at a location of your choosing. With NSL Double Talk, we are bringing the Never Stop Learning model directly to you. Each podcast will feature two experts in conversation on topics that range from global affairs to wellness to arts to innovation. Sometimes the experts agree, sometimes they don't, but we will never stop learning and never stop laughing. If I push this button and cough, what happens? (coughs) Oh, nothing. Okay. NSL Double Talk featuring Neil Patrick Harris and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Their topic today is their shared love of magic and the unexpected. Neil is an Emmy and Tony winning actor, writer, producer, comedian, magician, and singer known primarily for his comedy roles on television and his dramatic and musical stage roles. You may know him as Dookie Hauser, MD, or Barney Stinson from How I Met Your Mother, or Count Olaf from A Series of Unfortunate Events, or Hedwig from Broadway's Hedwig and the Angry Inch, or perhaps from the four times he hosted the Tonys or the time he hosted the Oscars or the time he hosted the Emmys. You get the picture. Equally impressive is Andrew Ross Sorkin. Andrew is a columnist for the New York Times and a co-anchor of Squawk Box on CNBC. He is the founder and editor-at-large of DealBook, an online daily financial report published by The Times. He is the author of Too Big to Fail, How Wall Street and Washington Fought to Save the Financial System and Themselves, which chronicled the events of the 2008 financial crisis. The book was adapted as a movie co-produced by Andrew and was nominated for 11 Emmy Awards. Andrew is also co-creator of the drama series Billions. We are so excited to welcome Neil and Andrew to NSL Double Talk. Hi, Andrew. This is going to be fun. Hi, Neil. We both have a similar sound to our... uh, Do we? To uh, a similar tone. Maybe. This might be complicated to listen. Do you feel that way? Should I go higher? (laughs) (laughs) I can go lower. I'll do See, I'll be down actor. Here. I'll be down this. Here. You do voices, so. Okay, so let's go back, because I have a serious question, which is I wanted to know, did you start doing magic yes. before you were an actor or after? I, because to me, it's so interrelated. Oh, I'm glad you think so. 100%. Nice. Nice. I think a lot of people don't agree with that, which we can get to in a sec. I did magic before I started acting. I was born in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and it was a magic shop called Fool's Paradise. And I was just enamored by the notion that a magic shop could exist. And there was this counter and a guy behind it. And there were just all of these little sponge things and coin things and card things. And then behind on the back were larger apparatus that had blades and, and Chinese writing. And it looked so exciting. And if you asked him what that was, then he would show me. So I got a little individual magic show. He wouldn't tell me how anything was done unless I paid for it. So that was kind of the draw. That was the opiate. And then I would say about my allowance, head straight to Fool's Paradise, ask to see 45 different things, and then count my change. And then sometimes I would buy five different packet tricks that cost six ninety nine. Then sometimes I would save up and buy one bigger thing that would make a glass of water vanish and reappear inside a box for... To me, magic is very similar, I think, to acting, but maybe I'm wrong on this, and I know you think there's a debate about it. All I wanted to do was entertain my friends and my parents' friends who would come over to our house, and I would be playing, you know, I had different decks of cards. And by the way, at one point I had rings. I loved my rings. Yeah, the linking rings. Um, it's a classic. Know, classic. I feel like there's essentially two types of people that watch magic. There's people that love it 
that don't care to know how it's done. They just like to have it happen and feel a childish wonder of an awe. And then there's people who must know how it's done and think that if they don't know how it's done, you're kind of making fun of them or tricking them or beating them in some way. So you, you wind up with some people who get angry at you that, oh, that's so that they don't know, you know, how did you do that? Come on! You know, getting upset at the end of the effect. See, I don't get upset. Almost like a bar bet, you know? I don't get upset, but I, and I assume this has to be for anybody in a magic audience. I get excited with sort of like childlike wonder, like how did they possibly do that? But at the same time, the wheels are spinning in my brain. How did they do that? He put the card down and then he put it in his mouth and then it came out of his mouth and it's a different card. And what <laughs> happened here? But right? this is why magic, I think, is so great. You can watch it passively, and you can just experience that, and then your brain is processing, you're ticking, and then you think, I don't even want to know, I just loved it. I had a great time at the show. And then some people have dabbled a bit in magic and know how certain things are done, and then can watch the performance and sort of know how something might be done. But it's almost even more exciting for them because they're seeing it in a way that has never been done before. Here's the complicated part for me now as, as a father... In the age of YouTube, when I was a kid, you'd go to a magic show or you'd see a magician, you'd leave with that childlike wonder, you'd be thinking about it all day, you'd say to your friends, you're not going to believe what he did, he, it's unbelievable, and you're telling all the stories. Today, I see it with my own son. We'll go to a magic show, see a magician do something, and he will go back home and go on YouTube and try to figure it out. Love. Do you love that? 100%. Because I wonder whether that takes away the magic. Not to your son, because he's a magician. True, but the wonder, like, I worry that it pierces the veil of how these things are done. It definitely limits the time between wondering and solving. Because right. I would do the same thing. I'd just have to go to the public library right. and then do a decimal my way to the magic section and then look through the actual books, which is essentially looking online but much, much slower. <laughs> if you're interested in it, you can track it down. So that's a very interesting thing in the magic world right now is the exposure of magic and how accessible secrets are. I sort of fit right in the middle. I have friends that are lifetime practitioners and will defer to other magicians only if they've really proven themselves in not a singular trick, but in, in a conversation of who they trained under. I mean, real right. serious yeah. magi. And I also- Magi? Have really, is that a word? It is now. Magi, that's, that would be like the plural of magicians. I'll go with it. Okay. We'll, we'll go with it. Magi. Magi. I want to Google it. Is that a real word? Magi. Magi. <laughs> the other side is then people who would use magic as commerce- and be able to come up with an idea, market it well, sell it to a lot of people, mostly non-magicians, and then make some money from it. That can stem into doing specials on television. Right. And then that's sort of the proliferation of magic in a consumer way. One side of those two does not necessarily like or approve of the other side of the two. The okay, so I like, like all magic. Lot. I got to say, I like if you're doing a card trick, that's great. And if you're doing this experiential thing where you're literally putting like real needles through your mouth, it's gross. But I give credit to that performer for doing it. I don't know how I'm supposed to think about the distinction between classic magic, sure. if you will, the, the trick, and then someone who commits a physical feat 
right? They're underwater. They're doing whatever it is. The David Blaine's of it all. The David Blaine's of yeah. it. I love David Blaine. Yeah, me too. Um, but what he does is so different. It's so different. Mm-hmm. And that's magic in its own way too. But how do you differentiate or di- what's the distinction in your mind? Well, for, for me, I, I think the fact that David Blaine does a lot of card tricks and, all, and, and can hold his own in a magic special makes him a magician. If he just did the underwater things and the you know, freezing himself to death kind of things, I think he would be more daredevil. Right. But the fact that he does magic tricks means to me that when he shoves something through his hand, a big ice pick, and you're seeing it going through his hand, because you know he does card tricks, I would suspect that more people would think that that was not actually right. happening, that he wasn't actually sewing his lips shut. Yeah. I would suspect that people would think, what's the trick? What's the trick? How did he do that? My son and I have been trying to figure out whether he really sewed his lips together, right? This we don't know. Yeah. I think he actually did. <laughs> Which, anyway, here's a magic issue. For, and I think it, it, we probably both deal with it in different ways, but as an actor... Do you enjoy doing magic and sort of the serendipity of that without a script, or do you prefer to be with a script? Because sometimes I do things that are scripted, and sometimes I think do things that are not I mean, in terms of questions. Or I will parry your question with a question. How does that work with you? I feel like watching you do what you do is its own magic trick in a way, because you are asking questions to someone that you may know everything about, you may know very little about, you may be being fed right. questions, right. and right. you have to act engaged. The whole thing, are you able to go off script, or do you pretty much stick to the questions and they know what's going to happen? I try not to stick to the script. The only ones that really work is when you listen. I always think that an interview, a great interview, and, and not necessarily something that you might do in a five-minute segment, but maybe something you would do for a half an hour, is you're trying to tell a story. I don't know if I'm the storyteller, but I'm working with somebody to try to create a story and to create a narrative arc. In my mind, I have this idea of how I'm going to get from point A to point B. But the fun part, hmm. which is sort of a little bit like magic, not in terms of a trick so much, but in terms of the serendipity of how things happen and how you have to sort of play off certain moments and when something works and when it doesn't and how you have to double back. As I'm asking people questions, I know I'm trying to, I got to get from A to B. I know where I'm going to land or I'm trying to get to the land, hmm. but it may not go the way I, I anticipated. The hard part I've always found about interviewing people, it depends how you're doing it. A segment on TV, five, seven minutes, I would actually argue to you that the most important part of that interview actually doesn't happen on TV or in front of people. It's actually whatever happened beforehand. Before, yeah. Oftentimes it's actually what you're doing with them during the commercial break hmm. because you've got 60 seconds to move. That's just a whole other trick. True. If you have longer, it sort of can be more complicated in some ways, but can also be beautiful if you can execute it and get them to that place that they don't necessarily really want to go where they're going to reveal something. It's about a comfort, unless you're the kind of interviewer that's trying to like you know whack them over the head. But that's a different stylistically thing. How long have you been co-anchor of Squawk oh, Box? About eight years now. So you have seen, I'm sure, a real shift in the news cycle in the sort of Donald Trump era. Has it changed everything? I'm not asking about your political opinions about that, but it feels like when I watch the news, there's so much news that happens every day. There's just an intensity to it that's different. I think it's more about the intensity of it. I always thought that the news business was sort of relentless, but this is like relentless times 100. Is that intentional, do you think? Is that its own form of a magic trick? I often wonder that. 
I often wonder when random things are happening politically, is it because that's being leaked as some sort of bizarre smoke screen, smoke and oh, mirrors. So I'm not as much of a conspiracy theorist that like certain things, I think there are times when things definitely get leaked out at certain times. Bad news always gets leaked out on Friday night or a Saturday right. when nobody's paying attention. If there's bad news on some front, I would not put it past the White House and to leak out good news. People are strategic in that way. But then oftentimes I think there's this weird assumption that if you're a writer at the New York Times and you have a positive story or a negative story, whatever the story is, that you're putting it out tomorrow because it will upend or usurp some other pieces. With it's some you, sort of agenda. You know what it is? Usually, usually it's just like you finally got the story. Like it, it's taken you all this time and it is like the first available shot you have to to actually publish it. So it's not- I get that. I, I know people have these sort of views that it's all very conspiratorial. I don't really think it's conspiratorial, but then some, I don't know, maybe it's right. just I'm getting older, but when Melania walks in like on a plane wearing a jacket that says right. disparaging things, during a time when there's a lot of other things happening, then everyone starts talking about that. It makes me feel like someone had the plan to, to manipulate it. To right. manipulate it so that that's all we talk oh, about while judges are getting that might be like that. That might be. She might have thought of that. I don't know. Well, she says that she didn't even know it was on the back of her. I don't raincoat. think she did. I don't know. But did someone? It's like so. The one thing I'll say just about, and I, now I don't want to get too political. I will say this about our president, President Trump. Before he was the president, used to call into Squawk Box literally every Tuesday. We used to do something. It was called Trump Tuesdays. Wow. He would call in and he would mouth off on whatever the issue of the day was, whether it's the Kardashians or whatever it was. He had a topic to talk about. He is, to his credit, and possibly depending on how you think of it, a detriment. He is like a great TV producer, and I think he thinks about. I mean, we've talked, I mean, everybody knows it's, yep. this is the sort of reality. He's a P.T. Barnum. He knows how to do it. He's a it, pitch man. And there's a magic to that. Sure. I don't know if it's a process, but, but on the acting side of your life, how does it relate to magic? Meaning the performance side of what you learned in magic. Is there a corollary? Does it show up in how you're trying to present yourself? For sure. I attribute a lot of... I think a lot of the tenets of magic work very well in life, and certainly if you're a performer. So misdirection is sort of clutch and crucial in magic and performance, uh, whether it be verbal or physical. If I have a coin in my right hand and I transfer it to my left hand, if I do that and then I hold both hands at the same height and then say, which one is it in? I'm giving you this idea that it could be in either hand. If I transfer it from my right hand to my left hand and I raise my left hand towards you and I show it to you and my right hand becomes inconsequential and drops, say, below the table, that's proper misdirection. I'm showing you where this coin is and you're automatically going along with it because I'm the magician doing my thing. I could be doing anything with my right hand, which you often are. I think that works in life as well because you can be unsure about how something may pan out, but if you're committed to it being a certain way, even though that might not be what's happening, you can steer people and people's energies. Can I self-narrate one thing for the listener? As you were talking about which hand you were actually doing that, <laughs> and I know you didn't have a coin in your hand, but I have to tell you, as you were doing it, I became convinced that you might. <laughs> that I was going to make a coin appear? That would have been so cool. <laughs> Here's one thing I've learned. Doing coin tricks on podcasts is not super effective. 
I was thinking about the digital world and how I can't figure out if the digital world, this goes a little bit of the YouTube issue, but whether the digital world is going to upend magic or is going to make it even cooler and better because there's something so tangible about magic. It's something, it's like you're physically holding something sure. real. And so how the sort of digital world have you done virtual reality? Have you played? I've played with virtual reality, but how virtual reality would sort of play into the world of magic? Yeah, sort of I'm very guessing, interesting. I'm guessing that they're going to start being able to overlay things, right? They're going to right now a virtual reality headset, for the most part, has two screens that you're looking at, and they're projecting the image onto the screen, and you're looking at the screens. Now they're starting to have glasses that project the image directly into your retina, right. so you can see you're wearing glasses. You can see what's actually happening, but you can then have something appear in your actual world. You know, you could play Pokemon Go with this sort of new retinal. But thing. don't you think that's going to screw magic up a little bit? I find I don't maybe know you, I don't know if you feel this way. There's a lot of magic now on TV. A lot of the streaming services have magic. There's yeah. there's magic everywhere. The more I watch it, the more I'm thinking in my head, oh, is, is it where the camera is angled? Is mm-hmm. it from there? Is, it, is the manipulation not by hand, but by technology? Yes, and I think the answer is yes. I don't think it's a singular answer. But what I think is good is that you're becoming more discerning in your magical taste by watching more magic. How did you become so, excited by it? What magicians did you grow up watching? I used to literally just go to birthday parties and there would be magicians there and I just fell in love with magic and then I used to go to different magic stores with my father and my mother on the weekends. We live in New York City. Actually, I know this is off topic, but I just want to ask you. So you started and had great success when you were young. And I had success, but not like you had success. I mean, like I was, I was doing this when I was 18, but you were like, I watched you in Doogie. So nice. I, I'm just, just putting it out there. Pre-porn. <laughs> You've had this remarkable career, and the thing that I always wanted to know is sort of what you think actually drives all of this now and continues to drive all of what you do now. Life so, on a very larger yeah, scale? Like, well, yeah, like, like why Because, you know, the perform? thing that's so interesting about you is because you're doing magic, you're doing acting, you're writing books, you're producing. I know these guys are probably like, it's not about magic, why are you asking this? But it's this very selfish question. I mean, selfish because I'm curious, selfish. Hmm. I can give you a really good answer, I think. Go for it. Since I started when I was young, and it was a very exciting... I did a movie with Whoopi Goldberg in 1986 or 87 called Clara's Heart. And that was the very first thing I'd ever done. It was super cool, and I was suddenly co-starring with Whoopi Goldberg in a movie, which was weird. Then I got Doogie Howser, which was four years. I was young, right? Everyone acknowledged that I was young. I was still in high school, and I was doing it. And when it was done, I enjoyed the experience, was less interested in what it got me, but I was very interested in while it was happening. I just didn't want that singular chapter to have defined me so early on. I wasn't even fully formed yet, and I knew that. Then, when I didn't get much TV work after that, because I had been so known for that, and I really wasn't getting much feature film work from that, because back then in the mid-'90s, you were kind of either a television person or a movie person. Was that scary, that, that time period? Not really. Because I had financial freedom to not need to pay bills. I wasn't needing to do something and had no real options. But I sort of had to reevaluate myself at a kind of young age and figure out that there's a bit of scrutiny and who am I, but I didn't go to college. So I spent some time figuring out what else I wanted to do. I tried the theater. I loved doing that. It was much more full body. You get reaction immediately. I also believe that as you get older, you have a better capacity to learn more things. 
you become less stubborn, I hope, <laughs> as opposed to being young and thinking that you know everything. I love saying I have no idea about social studies. My geography is terrible. So I'm going to learn about geography. I want to learn that now, not just say I'm bad at it. Because of that, I feel like now I'm in a position in middle age. Middle age is 45? Middle Are we age? Middle age? I hope not. I think that's middle. It I, might I, be. In the, how old do you plan on being? I'm going for 100. Are you? I would like, if, I, if it can be good at the end. It'll probably be 3D printers. <laughs> it's like, I need a new kidney. <laughs> Spit in the cup. And then know, rap, you got a kidney that a robot puts you know, in. So my grandmother just turned 100. And you know, on the Today Show, when they used to wish people yeah. a happy birthday, 100, they don't do that anymore because so many people are 100. Wow, 100 really? is no longer, I think, the cutoff. You got to actually like, get to be like 110. Wow. That's a I can't trick. believe that she's 100 years old. She is. Yeah, it's amazing. But I feel... But hard. It's not easy. It's not easy. For sure. And I, but I bet it'll be easier when we're 90 plus to exist. I think we'll be able to replace knees and hips and body parts and stuff quicker. Don't you think? I can only hope. I would definitely. So that's my long-winded answer to that question. I think it was such a crazy, unique experience that I wanted to continue doing experiences like that, but not necessarily that same type of experience. I'm a jack of many trades and a master of few. So interesting. What about you? How do you, I feel like your skill set is also very varied and unique. One of the reasons I think, and this is why I said it was like a selfish curiosity, that I asked you whether it was sort of scary in that moment in between the sort of great success and then your next great success. And maybe it's a terrible admission of my own. I think that I always sort of lived in this sort of great fear actually of being like a great pretender, you know, the, the hmm. imposter syndrome. So I started writing for the New York Times when I was 18 years old, and I was always convinced that somebody was going to figure out that this whole thing was like a fraud, like a scam hmm. or something. Like, how could this actually be happening? And so then I think throughout my whole career, I've always been trying to prove something to somebody or myself or my mother or I don't know what. <laughs> and I think I'm going to fail at something, so now i got to try the next thing, and maybe I should write a book, and if I could write a book, maybe that would prove that actually this other thing really wasn't a fraud, and then maybe, oh, okay, did the book, maybe they think that part's a fraud, okay, so I'm going to try, maybe I'll write a TV show, if I could do that, maybe they'll be like, oh, okay, he actually can do this. I don't know if that comes from a good place, I'm just saying. I'm with you, I feel the same thing. And I'm always pretty convinced that it's all going to go away tomorrow. <laughs> pretty much. That's so interesting. So at what point do you think that the longevity of it would weigh I think would, it's gotten better. I like to think it's gotten better over the years. Um, I felt the same way, man, because yeah. I never felt like I was my actual age. I didn't go to college, so I didn't really get the four years of that experience. So I kind of went from adolescence into fast business adulthood. So I was often in the place of I feel very fraudulent, but I'm faking it really well in a kind of magician way. And from magi to magician. To magician. We're going to have some t-shirts after this podcast. <laughs> but I wonder, and I can tell you what I think my answer is, but I would ask you, I was worried that I would finally feel like an adult when my parents died. My parents have not died, and I do feel like an adult, so that way I was wrong. But I was kind of going, I feel like Maybe I was lived in LA, I'd jump from job to job, you'd go to Vancouver for a month and film a thing. It was all kind of gypsy right. life, disparate. It didn't feel important, even though I was doing fun stuff. But at what point for you, I don't know. Will I, you feel like I don't know. I still feel like a kid. But you I have really, books that have No, but I don't feel like an adult. I don't feel like an adult at all. I really, really don't. I'm surprised by that. Yeah, no, I totally feel that way. Oh, not by what you do, but by how often you do what you do. Because you're having to hold your own 
in conversations with people who it seemed like they're adults. They're probably yeah. the same age as you, but they it's don't like wear it like, well. You're like a short order cook when you're doing, especially quick interviews and stuff. I always feel it's actually for the but the first, cook's not a kid. No, but it's funny that you say that. I always felt there was a huge disparity, just straight on age, yeah. between myself and the people that I would typically interview because I was always interviewing whether it was politicians or business executives or whatever. Now, for the first time, are we even getting close to sort of generationally where some of those people I actually knew like in my 20s? So that's actually very interesting. That is a shift. And maybe it'll be that. Maybe in the next couple of years, all of a sudden, you said you're 45? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I got three years to go. When do you think it, it hit for you in that way? I attribute more of it to parenthood. Okay. But not having kids made me feel like an adult because that was the opposite. Having kids made me feel very young, like I wasn't prepared for it or right for it. Now that they're eight, they look to us as adults, and I can't fake it. And in fact, I'm learning now that the best way to be an adult is to let them know that I don't know things. I felt like I was faking it more right. when they were five. Yes, and they would they, ask you these questions and you'd have, you'd have to answer. You'd have to have answers and you'd have to know yeah. structures and systems. And now they're old enough finally that they'll help me through things. Right. I'll say, I have no idea. We're not going to make it. We're not going to make it to school. We've barely had breakfast. I'm losing my mind. They'll say, okay, Papa, calm down. We got this. We're going to do some cereal. And then we're all working together. And then weirdly, since they're acting parental towards me, it makes me feel like a grown-up. Are they into magic? Sort of. Kids are into magic because it accomplishes something. They're not into really practicing and the craft and the skill like your son. I'm so impressed by that. You know, I write books, that the Magic Misfits books. Which we read to him, by the way. And That's have like, magic tricks in them for kids to yes. learn because I think that there's a small group of people who will take to it and who will go home and watch the YouTube videos and figure out how it's done and probably do that on his own. What's the best magic trick that you do? That I do? Yeah. Well, well if, if someone said, hey, do a trick, here's a deck of cards, or tomorrow will you perform a magic trick for me? Was there a go-to oh, just trick a, I that you've do done? Uh, these days, I have to, I'm rusty. I would do a coin thing. Coin stuff? Coin I do stuff a coin thing. Cool. I still think that my magic trick with my big needle through the thumb Middle was actually a pretty great trick. I can recommend a trick by uh, the late, great Harry Anderson, okay. who recently passed away, and it's the needle through arm. Needle through arm. Yeah, it's yeah. a long needle, and it has a little you know, ball at the end. It's like a hat box needle, and you can show your arm, uh, your forearm, and you push the needle yeah, yeah, yeah. through, and then you turn. Yeah, I know. And then yeah. when you turn again, you can see the needle yeah, in the arm and then start yeah. bleeding. Yeah. Fantastic trick. Okay, we're going to have to go do that. Oh, I got one more. I know they're going to run out of time, but this is just because I'm curious. We, the other version of the magicians that we haven't really talked about. We talked about the people doing the feet, if you will, the, the physical feet. Then mm-hmm. we talked about classic magic. Where are you on mentalists? I love the mentalists. Here's what I like. I like seeing the magic and then appreciating that that performer has done a bit of research to get where they are. When you're dealing with coin magicians, you kind of have to have done your research because you have to do things. You have to palm coins right. and move them around without clinking and things like that. Then I'm interested to know, okay, well, did you go JB Bobo coin magic or did you watch videos? And a, or when you go cards, a lot of these young kids today with young kids today with cards, they'll do the, a lot of the flourishes, yes. the one-handed cuts and the totally. cobra cuts. And they're doing it on Instagram too, have you noticed? Yeah, this? it's super cool. It's crazy. Okay. I love it. But at least I know that they're watching and that they're learning and they're doing it. That's to me, is more interesting than people just doing the same illusions that right. David Copperfield did in the same exact way for people in Where's the Where is David town. Copperfield today? 
David's crushing is still, it. Is he still in Vegas crushing it? Still doing, he does more okay. shows than any magician. Uh, wow. He's in the Guinness Book of World Records. Thank you for the conversation. This is great. I mean, I probably like owe you money. I feel like I went to see a psychiatrist. <laughs> I like that you got a little personal about it. I didn't think with magic, I thought we'd be talking about Blaine versus Copperfield. Go. Okay, yeah. I have a question for you. Yeah. Blaine versus Copperfield. Go. Blaine. Interesting. Well, it's funny. Obviously, David Copperfield captured my imagination as a child. But now he spends 30 minutes doing this alien bit. So I would have to say Blaine <laughs> And I think as well. that David Blaine is just, he, he then captured my imagination in terms of some of the things he did. More in the feet category, in the sort of uh, physical feet. I mean, obviously, he can do these amazing things with cards and other kinds of tricks. But I'm so, I've been sort of blown away by these physical acts. I don't know if I consider that magic so much as sort of something like a, just a performance, like I just crazy. David Blaine is great because he exudes magic. Ability, yeah, another non-word. He he talks in that kind of monotonic. He gives you a lot of eye contact. His vibe is magic. So okay, same question. Copperfield, Blaine, probably friends with both. No, I have to go. I have to go. Copperfield. Okay, makes it interesting at least. Well, I've always liked coming to New York and seeing Broadway shows and, and things. So I grew up every year watching David do a special where not only did he do a singular thing, make the Statue of Liberty vanish right. or walk through the Great Wall of China, but he would do these great vignettes where he would do 15 small little effects, but it was couched as if it was in his apartment in New York and a girl was coming over and he made her vanish and made the drink appear and pour on its own. I love all of that stuff. That's like the ingenuity to me is cool. And he just continues to keep on working. And has a private island in the Bahamas, so I kind of hope that if I say this right now, he may someday listen to the podcast and invite me to the cool magic island. You want to give out your email address right now? He has it. Okay, good. Okay, this has been fun. 100%. Okay, thanks. We have to end every one with 100%. I sold the line 100%. That was fun. 